0: All right. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you here today, and I'm excited uh, for this message. Uh, God has put this on my heart for a while, and I'm glad to be able to uh, share it with you today. Before we start, I want all of you to take a minute and just look around this room and take a good look. Now, I want to ask you what you see when you look around at all the people here. Um, I see brothers and sisters who I care about and do life with, but I also see more than that. When I look around this room, I see a lot of young people with great potential. I see a number of young men who could be elders one day and serve in the leadership of this church. I see a number of young women with the potential to lead women's groups and serve as deaconesses and serve on the women's council. And I see young men and women who could disciple other believers, I see a ton of great potential as I look around this room today. The big question is how do we move that potential into actual effective spiritual leadership for our church? And that's what I want to talk about. Stephen Pressfield is an author and has written a number of books about warfare and leadership. He wrote Gates of Fire about the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, he wrote The Lion's Gate about Israel retaking the Temple Mount from Jordan during the Six Day War. And he also wrote a book called The Tides of War about the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta that lasted 27 years. And the main character in Tides of War is an Athenian general named Alcibiades, famous for his courage and his skill at leading men into battle. And one night, around a campfire, Alcibiades and his officers were talking, and one of them asked him, How do you lead free men into battle? Men who are not slaves and not mercenaries. And Alcibiades answered, by being better than they are, by being better and commanding their emulation. He went on to say that a commander's role was to model excellence before his men. You didn't need to beat them into greatness, only hold out to them an example of greatness and they will be compelled by their own nature to follow that example. And there are some real truths in Alcibiades' words for all who are in positions of spiritual leadership or who desire to be one day. How do we compel followers of Jesus Christ in our churches to trust and follow our leadership? How do we lead volunteers to be the best Christ followers they can be? One of the surest ways is to be better than they are. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but I do mean is that we live such a compelling life of passion and obedience to Christ, that people will be drawn to our example and live passionate and obedient lives for Christ themselves. In many ways, how well spiritual leaders live their lives each day will determine the maturity and the strength of their church, how passionately their people will seek after Jesus Christ and seek to obey his commands. Where our lives are marked by passion and holiness, you're likely to see church members whose lives are marked by passion and holiness. And when spiritual leaders are lazy or ungodly or disobedient, we open the door for Satan to come in and ravage our church. In many ways, the church will rarely rise above the level of its leader's spiritual maturity. That is why it's so critical that spiritual leaders are passionate and seeking to lead by example. It's almost impossible to take people to a place where we have not ourselves already gone, to challenge people to obey Christ in ways that we are not. The leader's example sets the tone for the church. So it's no wonder that Paul cautioned Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 to watch his life and his teaching. The salvation of his people and the strength of his church depended on it. And we're going to go through the last half of 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning and examine the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy and all who are called to spiritual leadership. And it it's especially crucial to young men and women in the Lord who feel a tug toward spiritual leadership, since Timothy himself was a young man in a position of spiritual leadership. So let's see what Paul has to say to a young man in a place of spiritual authority. Just some quick background. Paul wrote 1 Timothy toward the end of his life, He'd spent two years under house arrest in Rome, and then he was released. His original plan was to travel to Spain. But problems in the churches in Asia Minor and Greece brought him back to the churches in the east he had founded earlier. And he sent Timothy, his young protege, to Ephesus to address some problems in that church while he traveled to northern Greece to visit the churches there. And from there, he wrote Timothy about some of the issues he wanted to address in Ephesus. And let's be clear. As a young man, it was one thing for Timothy to stand next to Paul and help lead a church. It's something else altogether for Timothy to stand on his own without Paul beside him. So we'll pick it up in 1 Timothy 4.11. And we'll start it with an exhortation to be strong. As Paul thinks about Timothy and his ministry, he has some key exhortations for him. And the first one is that Timothy needed to be strong as a spiritual leader. Look at verse 11. He says, Prescribe and teach these things. If this is Paul's summary of what he has instructed Timothy so far in his letter, it's quite a lot he was to prescribe and teach. The role of the law in salvation, the call to prayer, the role of women in the church, the qualifications for elders and deacons and deaconesses in the first three chapters. And in chapter four, his challenge to be on guard against false teaching about marriage and food and worldly fables that only sidetracked people from what really matters. And also the need for godliness more than physical discipline. And to focus on Jesus Christ as the only Savior of mankind. What I find interesting here is that Paul tells Timothy to prescribe these things. That is to command them. The word parangelo is a strong word meaning to command or to give orders. And one thing we know about Timothy was that being strong and giving commands did not come naturally to him. In 1 Corinthians 16, 10, Paul was sending him to Corinth, and he asked the believers there that Timothy would have no cause to be afraid when he got there. And in his last letter, Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 7, that we have not received a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Commanding wasn't easy for Timothy. Timothy. But there are simply times a spiritual leader must be strong and forceful when dealing with hard issues in the church, such as false teaching or false teachers. We can't be passive in the face of evil or sin. Timothy needed to be strong, not arrogant, but calm and confident. And Timothy was also to teach the things that Paul had been instructing him, the importance of qualified leaders, the dangers of false teaching, the priority of the gospel, all those things were crucial for Timothy to have success in his ministry, and he needed to teach them faithfully. So Paul begins his encouragement to Timothy in this passage with the call to be strong and command and teach the truth. Even young men and women at times have to have the courage to command and teach the truth without letting fear or doubt eat away your confidence. This is Paul's equivalent of, Paul exhorting, of God exhorting Joshua to be strong and courageous because the Lord is God was with him. Timothy was to be strong and courageous because his Lord Jesus Christ was with him. And Paul is just getting started. So as we come to the next section, we hit Paul's exhortation to Timothy because he is a young man, because he was younger than many of the elders serving in Ephesus. His youth might be an issue in his leadership. So Paul gives Timothy some very pointed advice to overcome his youth. Set a godly example. Look at the first part of 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. You know, it's easy to understand how some might have looked at a young man like Timothy and wondered if he was up to the task of apostolic representative in Ephesus. It is likely that there were some in the church who questioned his maturity, as if anyone that young might have any wisdom for their church. Some might have even challenged him publicly and tried to undermine his leadership. So Paul reminds Timothy not to let anyone look down on him simply because he was a young man. There's more to being a spiritual leader than how old you are. How godly you are matters far more than how old you are. Some older men are very godly, having walked with God for years. Other older men are just old, with little wisdom and godliness in their lives. Some young people have a passion for God and lead godly lives where Christ shines through them, while other young people are immature and show little heart for God. Look, I know how true this is, because in the past here at Oak, the elders took some flack when we nominated Adam and Grant, and Ryan Carell, and Kenny, to be on the elder board. Why? Some people told us they're too young. They shouldn't be elders. And I can honestly say today that time and service have proved all of them more than qualified to be elders here at Oak, and I count it one of the great privileges of my life to have served with them. Godliness, not age, is the key requirement of leadership in God's church. And by the way, another caution for all of you who God may be stirring into leadership one day, there will always be people who find something to criticize you for. All right? You're too young and lack experience. You're too old and can't reach young people. Your teaching is too strong. Your teaching is too weak. Listen, learn to be thick-skinned. Don't worry about trying to please the critics. Strive to please God and let him deal with the critics. So what could Timothy do that would show people that he was indeed a godly young man whom God had called to this ministry? The best way to silence the critics was for Timothy to set an exemplary life. He was to set an example of what godly maturity looked like. Look at the next part of verse 12. But rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who who believe. The way for Timothy to overcome those who complained about his age was to live an exemplary life that fulfilled the first qualification of an elder, to be above reproach. To live in such a way that there was nothing glaring in his life that people could point to. And Paul lists five areas where Timothy was to set an example of what a godly believer must be. First, in his speech. A godly leader has to set an example in their speech. Your words can make or break you in ministry, and all leaders must learn to control their tongues and use their words for good and not for evil. James cautions that someone who can't bridle their tongue isn't mature and will probably have other areas of weakness as well. The New Testament gives us some clear words about how to use our tongue. Look at Ephesians 4.29. Paul wrote this, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it will give grace to those who hear. One of my profs called this the most violated verse in the Bible, and he may well be right. We are not to let any unwholesome words come out of our mouths. Unwholesome carries the idea of rottenness or corruption or decay. It means anything that injures others and brings dissension into our churches. Wrong words can destroy a ministry. Instead of unwholesomeness, our words are to bring grace and wholesomeness and health into the church. Words that encourage and build people up. This doesn't mean that we never criticize or that we overlook sin. We are called to address sin in the church for the good of the flock. But how we address these issues matters. Even when confronting sin, we must do it with grace and gentleness, as Paul reminds us in Galatians 6.1. We have to show real concern for the people we're disciplining. And our words must be seasoned with grace, as Paul reminds us in Colossians 4.6, that they might bring grace and healing and help to those around us. It also means no profanity and dirty jokes. A spiritual leader who starts dropping profanity the first time something goes wrong has no business being a spiritual leader. Ultimately, we have to remember that Jesus, what Jesus cautions us about in Matthew twelve thirty four, that the mouth speaks out of what fills our hearts. And our words reveal our hearts to people. So our words must set an example of what a godly believer speaks like. Second, conduct. The problem with being in spiritual leadership is that you live in a fishbowl. I had a neighbor once tell me, My kids should be perfect because I'm a pastor. (laughs) You know, people are watching everything you do. So, those who would lead in the church must live exemplary lives in their conduct. Our obedience must be evident to everyone who watches our lives, our conduct must demonstrate a love for Christ, and it must demonstrate a life of obedience. Turn over to Luke chapter 6. Look at verses 46 to 49. It says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock, and when the flood occurred and the torrent burst against that house, it could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it and immediately collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus asked his followers that day a significant question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you're not willing to do what I say? How can we ever expect God's flock to be more like Jesus if we aren't seeking to obey Christ in all our conduct? Spiritual leaders have to lead by example. For us to try and lead our church and build significant ministries without living lives of obedience to Christ is like building that house without any foundation. That house is doomed to collapse. Our ministries must be built on obedience to Christ. Our conduct must honor Christ. A couple of areas where I believe our conduct is crucial. First, our marriage and family. First test of any spiritual leader is his home life is a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church? Is a wife respecting and honoring her husband's leadership? Are we raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Our marriage and family life has to set an example for the church. Look at 1 Timothy 3, 2-4. He says, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? It's significant that in these verses Paul describes the qualifications of an elder or a pastor in a church that he singles out marriage and family life as crucial. An elder has to be a one-woman kind of man who is known for his love and his care and his faithfulness to his wife. And he must have his children under control and respectful of his leadership. Paul takes this seriously, stating that a man who can't lead his own family can't manage the church, church's household as well. The same problems that lead to chaos in the home will lead to chaos in the church. A man's leadership at home and loving his wife sacrificially and disciplining his children well must set an example for the church. A woman's willingness to respect and honor her husband's leadership must set an example for the church. Otherwise, our leadership will be undermined. Peter even warned husbands that a man who is insensitive to his wife and doesn't treat her in a godly way will not have their prayers heard by God. Who in leadership can afford that? Next area, we have to set an example. Money. Um, how well we handle money, both the church's and our own matters in leadership. We must be, live lives marked by complete honesty and openness financially so that we cannot be accused of stealing or misusing the church's money. We have to be accountable. And I've heard some pastors say, that no one has the right to question them about how they spend the church's money. That they're the pastor and God has given them the right to do whatever they want. Touch not God's anointed. There's just so much wrong with that idea. Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians 8 that leaders need to be open and honest in their use of money so that people will know that, they're, that they're con- by our conduct that we are serious about following Christ. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 8. Verses 16 to 21. Paul says this, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. We have sent him along with the brother whose fame in these things of the gospel has spread to all churches. Not only this, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Paul had been collecting this special offering uh, from the churches he founded in Greece and Turkey to help the struggling believers in Jerusalem. But he also took along believers from those donating churches with him so that they could help him deliver the offering. But notice what Paul says about those appointed to accompany him. First, he says that it's a precaution that no one can discredit Paul by accusing him of taking the money for himself or misusing what was collected. By sharing responsibility, Paul couldn't be falsely accused by someone with a grudge against him. But second, don't miss what Paul says in verse 21, that he had regard or respect for what was honorable not only in the sight of God, but also in the sight of men. He was willing to be accountable to other people and allow them to be involved with the distribution of the money. Paul never said, hey, I'm an apostle. Don't ever question me. To be an example with our money, leaders need to give faithfully to the Lord's church. If you're not giving something, you're not ready for leadership. Um, it's an issue of faith and obedience. To be an example with our money, we also need to avoid going so far into debt that we're on the edge of being broke and ruined every day. I I worked at a church years ago where our youth pastor developed a horrible reputation for handling money. It got so bad, creditors were calling the church wondering who was gonna pay his bills. That's a terrible predicament to put the church in. Needless to say, that guy had to move on to another church not long after that because he had so poor a reputation for how he handled money. How we use our money speaks volumes about our priorities and our values. And Paul warns Timothy later in chapter 6 that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Those who wish to lead God's church have to set an example in how they conduct themselves with their finances. Third area we have to set watch our conduct is our diligence. Um, we have to be willing to work hard hard if we're going to serve in leadership for the Lord. Ministry is hard work. A lazy leader who refuses to work hard for the good of the flock dishonors Christ and dishonors the church. Church leaders must be hard workers who are diligent in their study and their care for God's people. Ministry is hard work. Look at 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul wrote this, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Paul urges Timothy to be a diligent student of the Bible so he can teach it accurately. Anyone who teaches in the church must be willing to work hard and study hard so that they can teach God's people well. There are no shortcuts to studying if we want an effective ministry in the church. We have to work hard and be diligent. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. It's one of my favorite chapters, by the way. Paul says this for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day. So as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. It's significant that in the face of critics who were attacking Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, Paul could call on the memory of those he had served as to the kind of life he lived. And his time there was marked by hard work day and night to both meet his own financial needs and to preach the gospel. Paul reminds them that he worked to the point of exhaustion in serving the believers there. The call to ministry is a call to sacrificial service and work. It is not for the faint of heart, and it is especially not for the lazy. Lazy leaders will produce lazy sheep, and laziness dishonors the Lord who gave everything to save us. We owe him our diligence in service in the church. And hard work starts with the job you are in right now. Nothing dishonors the gospel more than Christians who are lazy and who don't work hard and who don't do a good job at whatever job they are doing. And I have to say, this generation has a reputation of having a very poor work ethic. And it's up to you to change it. So whether we're at home or at work or at church, a leader's conduct needs to be above reproach and especially needs to be above reproach in his family life and his finances and our diligence. The next area Paul mentions is love. He tells Timothy, he's to set an example in his love for his people. And this is not just some warm emotional feeling, but a willingness to sacrifice regularly for the good of those you are called to lead. Without a deep, sacrificial love for people, our ministry will never achieve what God wants it to. Turn to First Thessalonians 2 again. Look at verses 7 and 8, and then verse 11. Paul wrote this, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. And now 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. As Paul looked back on his ministry in Thessalonica, it was marked by a deep affectionate love for the people he'd led to Christ there. Notice he describes himself as a mother gently caring for her newborn baby, and he, that he exhorted them and encouraged them like a father does his own children. Why? Verse 8 says it all. He had a fond affection and love for them that gave, so that he gave them not only the gospel, but he gave his very life to them because he cared about them. Here's the secret for why Paul was so successful in ministry. He truly and deeply cared for the people he led to Christ, and he demonstrated it sacrificially all the time. Loving people means spending time with them, caring for their needs, listening to their concerns. It means modeling real Christianity before them, serving faithfully, forgiving when necessary, and warning and rebuking when required. Leaders must love their people. Next area, faith. And there are two aspects to this idea of faith, one is our faithfulness to holding on to right Christian doctrine, even in the face of pressure to deny Christ or compromise. The world will always demand that we compromise the truth. But true spiritual leaders must hold fast to the truth, once for all delivered to the saints. Paul hammers this over and over again in First and 2 Timothy and in Titus, letters written to young leaders. The second way we are to set an example of faith is in the area of actively trusting Christ day to day in every area of our lives, our ministry, our provision, our families, our church. We must be willing to believe the word of God and to act on it, even if that means taking risks at times. The idea of living by faith in God that never involves taking risks is a contradiction. Real faith must be willing to take risks at times. You can't always play it safe and lead people into a deeper walk with God. Turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 8. We read this. "'By faith Abraham, when he was called, "'obeyed by going out to a place "'which he was to receive as an inheritance, "'and he went out not knowing where he was going.'" Abraham took a risk by leaving his home and leaving his family without knowing where he was going. All he had was God's promise that he would tell him when he got there. No Google Maps, no Motel 6, nothing. Just honest faith in the promise of God. And if you keep reading through this chapter, you will find men and women taking risks on God's promises alone. Moses went back to Egypt and confronted Pharaoh on God's promise to be with him. Rahab, took a risk and helped Joshua's spies because she believed God would save her. Throughout this chapter, followers of God took risks and were willing to believe that God would keep his promises. Listen, years ago, uh, our church was looking to move from the school we were in into a storefront, and we spent some time negotiating with the landlords. And at a certain point, I got scared. And I said, no. And I went back to my church. I told them, you know what? We're not going to do this. We're not going to move. But as I continued to pray over the circumstances that following week, God convicted me that I was asking the landlords to live by more faith than I was willing to live by. I was letting my fear control my faith. And the following Sunday, I went back to my people and I asked their forgiveness for being a poor leader and for failing to trust God. And we ended up going back into negotiations and we moved into that storefront and we had seven good years there. Lesson learned. To set an example of faith means both an uncompromising fidelity to God's word and a willingness at times to take risk based on the promises of God. Spiritual leaders have to do both. Last area, purity. Uh, In an immoral world where few people take seriously the call to moral purity, Christian leaders must live a life of sexual purity. Our conduct in the area of sexuality will either call our people to a life of moral purity or will sow the seeds for destruction in our ministry. We must be the ones who set the example of living living sexually pure before marriage and being faithful to our spouses after. We can't compromise here. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Followers of Christ must live a life of sanctification or holiness, which means avoiding the taint of any kind of sexual sin. To sin sexually is to steal from somebody else that which does not belong to you. It is a failure to control our bodies as God calls us to do. And it means letting our lusts run wild. And worst of all, to reject Paul's command here is to reject the God who gives us the Holy Spirit. If you're a young person here today, you face temptations that never existed when I was a young man. Pornography at your fingertips, a sex-obsessed culture where anything goes, in a world that thinks you are nuts for waiting until you're married you're young and you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, don't fall for the lie that says, well, we're gonna get married anyway, so what does it matter? It always matters when it comes to obeying the Lord. We can't just ask for forgiveness and we're okay. You can't deliberately commit sexual sin and expect there will be no consequences. There are always consequences. Guilt, shame, pregnancy, fear of people finding out, feeling dirty or used, not to mention the impact it may have on your ability to trust and respect each other going forward. Someone who can't control their sexual urges has no business in spiritual leadership, period. And at a time and in a society where sexual chaos reigns, those who would lead Christ's church must set a high example for sexual and moral purity. If this is an issue for you. If you've crossed lines you shouldn't have crossed and you don't know what to do, I'll tell you what to do. Confess it. Find someone to hold you accountable. Bring it into the light. Get it out of the darkness. It's the only way out. Sunlight always brings healing. If nothing else, remember what Paul would tell Timothy later in 2 Timothy 2. Flee youthful lusts. To the critics of Timothy's youth, Paul had a simple answer. To live such a godly life that critics have nothing to criticize. This is true for many of you here today. If you will lead a godly life in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity, God will be able to use you greatly. Do that and people won't worry about how old you are. Give people an example to follow. The surest defense against critics is always a godly life that sets an example of what a passionate follower of Jesus Christ looks like. All right, let's talk about the tools God gives us. You know, when Carol and I bought our cabin at Hume, it needed a lot of work and I had very few tools. And one thing I quickly discovered is that the right tool makes all the difference in the world. And I discovered that one day as I was standing on top of a ladder trying to hold a board and hold a nail and swing a hammer. And I thought, there must be a better way. And there was, it's called a compressor and a nail gun. And it made the job so much easier. The right tool always makes a difference. And in his ministry at Ephesus, Paul urges Timothy to use the tools God has given him. Look at verse 13. The first tool is Scripture. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Until Paul arrived at Ephesus, Timothy was to use this first tool, Scripture. The word for give attention to is present, active, and it means to keep on giving yourself to these things. Scripture was to be the constant center of Timothy's time and attention as he carried out his ministry. Paul then gives him several instructions for how to do this. First, he says, read the scriptures publicly. There needed to be a place in the public services where Timothy was, where the word of God was read to the people so that it can bring comfort and correction and challenge to God's people. The word of God on its own has the power to work in the hearts of believers. Second, he's to exhort people with the scriptures. Exhortation means to challenge people to apply the truth of Scripture to their daily lives. It can mean warning, encouragement, comfort, or rebuke, but it always involves exhorting people to act on the truths of God's Word. And finally, Timothy is to teach the truths of Scripture to his people. He is to make sure they understand the great truths of God and what they mean for their lives. Truth matters because what people believe is what people live. That's why Paul states in 1 Timothy 3, 2, that an elder must be able to teach the word. The word of God was to shape and empower Timothy's ministry. And for those of you who would serve in spiritual leadership, the word of God must shape and empower your lives. You must become a person of the book. Scripture must occupy a huge place in your life, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, and most of all, obeying it. This is especially crucial for the coming generations of church leaders when we live in a time when so much of the church is being enticed away from the truth and into error. Leaders must learn to use the tool of Scripture. Second tool, spiritual gifts. Look at verse 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The second tool Timothy was to use was a spiritual gift he had received earlier in his life. There was a point in the past where the elders of his church and where Paul had laid hands on him and prayed for him and dedicated him to service to the Lord. And with that prayer came the giving of a spiritual gift to Timothy for his service. And Paul will remind him again of this in 2 Timothy 1.6, that Paul himself had laid hands on him at that time. And we aren't told what this gift was, but clearly it was a gift that was vital to Timothy's service to the Lord. Perhaps teaching or evangelism or leadership. Whatever it was, Timothy was not to neglect it, but instead to actively use it. This is a reminder that with God's calling to service will will come God's gifting for service, whether through the laying on the hands of others or simply from the Lord. Look, when I was in college, we were going on a, down to Mexico on a bus for a week's outreach down near the town of San Quintin, about four hours south of Ensenada. And on the way down, I shared with Carols before we'd ever gone out or anything, and another girl on staff that I was really frustrated because I felt like God was calling me into ministry, but I couldn't teach, and I wasn't sure what I should do. And they both gave me some pious answer about, oh, don't worry, God will take care of it. And I remember thinking to me, oh, thank you so much. You're so helpful. (laughs) All right. So the next day we get down there and we organize ourselves into outreach to go to four different villages that night. And the leader tells us someone in each team is going to have to give the sermon. Now, my team had a guy in his 40s who'd been a Christian for two months, a 17-year-old high school translator, and four girls. So I went back to the leader and I said, "Um, we don't have anybody who can give the sermon. You can see where this is going, right? And he told me I was going to do the sermon that night in my village, and then I was going to lead devotions for the whole team the next day. I got as far as but, and he was gone. I had four hours to prepare a sermon, and I cried out desperately to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit came, and he filled me that day, and he gave me the gift of teaching. And two months later, that youth guy was gone and I was leading the high school group and I was teaching 125 high school kids on a regular basis. God came through. If God is calling you to spiritual service, trust that with his calling will come his gifting and then use those gifts to serve his church. And when you hit challenges and problems in your ministry, go back, remember that day God called you, remember that day God gifted you and let that be an encouragement to you. Finally, we come to the last point, to stay focused. And if I could sum up these last two verses, that's it. Stay focused. This is Paul's charge to Timothy and his charge to all who would lead his church. Timothy was to stay focused and make sure his time and his energy and his passion were on the right things. Look at verse 15. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Timothy was to take pains in these things, that is literally to practice and cultivate them in his service. But additionally, that word carries the idea of thinking about and meditating on them. You cannot be half-hearted in Christian service. We need to be all in. We need to be strong. We need to set an example. We need to use the word in his gifts. These things have to become the passion and focus of our lives. That's Paul's charge to Timothy. And that phrase, be absorbed in them, literally means to be in them. These were the things to occupy Timothy's time and attention. If he wanted to be faithful in the service to God. And if Timothy put God, Paul's exhortation into practice, his spiritual growth would become evident to the people in his church. And it would increase his effectiveness to ministry. If you will become absorbed and passionate about these things. God will use you in leadership in his church and people will see your growth and your progress too. Look at verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do, this will ensure salvation both to yourself and for those who hear you. Everyone who is serious about serving God has to take Paul's exhortation to pay close attention to your life and your doctrine to heart. We have to give great attention to how we live and what we teach. We have to keep close tabs on both our outer life and our inner life. We have to strive to be that example that Paul exhorts Timothy to be. But along with that, we have to be faithful to make sure we are teaching true doctrine. This again is a reminder that we have to be faithful students of the word so we can teach it accurately. Our attention to our teaching can't be casual. Listen, a godly life backed up by faithful doctrine is an unstoppable force. Paul exhorts Timothy to persevere in these things, that is to stay in them, remain in them, persist in them. His life How he lived and his teaching, his ability and dedication to communicate God's truth to others were the things that were to absorb Timothy's time and attention. Some leaders have great doctrine, but eventually it comes out that their personal lives are a mess and it undermines their ministry. Some leaders are nice people, but their doctrine is a mess and they mislead people into error and hell. Strong doctrine backed by a godly life is what God demands all who would be leaders in his church. And Paul finishes with why this matters. It is only as leaders are careful about how they live in their daily walk with Christ and diligent to study and teach God's Word accurately and faithfully that we can ensure not only our own salvation, but the salvation of those who hear us teach. The ultimate success of Timothy's ministry in Ephesus would depend on how well he watched over his life and how well he taught the truth. He had to stay focused. Well, that's it. That's Paul's challenge to young people who are feeling called to serve as leaders in God's church one day. You need to be strong and command and teach the truth. You need to set an example of godliness every day in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity. You need to use the tools God has given you to serve him, his word, and your spiritual gifts. And finally, these things must absorb and captivate and spur you every day to stay focused on the things that truly matter. And I want to close with this. Back in the 70s, when I was a young man and feeling the stirring of the Lord to church leadership, I came across a book by Dr. Gene Getz called The Measure of a Man. And it explained in detail the qualifications of an elder in the church. And as I read it, God sparked something in, in my heart. This great desire to be that kind of man, to have that kind of ministry, to be that kind of leader in his church someday. And it has driven me ever since. So my goal this morning has been simple. I hope this message will spark something deep in the hearts of some of you here today to be the kind of leader the church of Jesus Christ will need going forward. Doesn't matter how old you are, what matters is how godly you are and how passionate you are and how willing you are to pursue something deeper with the Lord, because the future of the church is in your hands. Let's pray. Father, I thank you now for what Paul tells Timothy, but most of all for how it applies to so many here today. God, we are a church that is blessed. At a time when many churches are all senior citizens, we have so many who are young men and women, men and women who love you and who want to serve you and who you are calling to leadership. And I pray today, God, they would take to heart your message to Timothy, that you would that he would apply it to their own lives and that you would stir up in them a passion and desire to be leaders in your church so that your church can stand against all the pressures and persecutions and attacks that are going to come in the decades ahead. The future of the church depends on the next generation of leadership that arises. So we ask that you would bring it up here at Oak Hill. And we ask it in your name. Amen.